Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. For years now, we've reported on numerous legal actions brought by the U.S. vaping industry against the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Some were long shots, challenging the FDA's authority to deem vaping products to be a tobacco product. Others had some promise, seeking to extend deadlines set by the FDA concerning its pre-market tobacco application process. For a variety of reasons, these efforts failed, but current efforts by the U.S. vaping industry that challenge FDA's marketing denial orders are winning favor in the courts. Could the industry be close to a major victory? Joining us today to help answer this question is attorney and well-known vaping advocate, Greg Troutman. Greg, thanks for coming back on RegWatch. Hey, Brent, thanks for having me back on. Well, there's lots to discuss. Let me say, after going through some of the recent court decisions, it really feels like the tide may finally be turning for vaping. Is there reason to be hopeful? That's a good that's a good way to characterize it. Yes, I believe there is. And if you look at a timeline over things that have happened over the past year, it's almost like things are falling into place, dominoes are falling into place. And it starts really with the, um, the Biddy decision last August. Uh, which was really our kick the door open for us and finding that FDA acted arbitrary. That, and that was, that was six different companies in three separate cases in the 11th circuit in Atlanta. Then you move into the fall and we found out that the um, Reagan Udall foundation is going to do their, their review. That report comes out and in looking at some of the comments that were laid open publicly, that people were within FDA were anonymously able to, um, state freely their comments. And it was eye-popping. The, the level of political influence that was going on. Then we move forward in early December in the Logic case in the Third Circuit, there were some memos that leaked out in that uh, case. And it showed that last summer, the Office of Science had indicated it believed it was appropriate to allow marketing of menthol vape products, only to be overruled by the new CTP director, Brian King, right after he met with Raja Kursamuthi, who was then chair of house oversight, and Dick Durbin, who's chair of house judiciary. And those were eye-popping. So Greg, before we dive deeper into the rulings and what may come next, please take a moment to fill our viewers in on your background and experience working on behalf of APIC. Well, I'm an attorney based in Louisville, Kentucky. I've been around a little over 30 years now. And I got involved with the industry about 10 years ago, about this time, about this time 10 years ago, with a single client who was getting ready to open a single store. And that is now many stores later, distributorship later. He introduced me around. I found that there were very few people that had attorneys in this industry, gotten to know a lot of people. And, you know, that sort of went from there. And it went from then litigating the case in Indiana that we may have talked about previously back um, in 2015, 2016, which we prevailed. And from there, it's been on to a national level. I never thought 10 years ago that I would be doing what I'm doing now. Greg, our viewers should know that there are two major opportunities to notch wins for the industry. Some of them you've already discussed. And the first one that I think that we should talk about is the U.S. Supreme Court and an upcoming hearing in a matter unrelated to vaping, but which could overturn a longstanding precedent that requires federal judges 
to defer to a regulatory agency's interpretations of federal laws. And the other opportunity concerns the FDA, and as you mentioned, the denial of pre-market tobacco applications. Let's start with the overview on the Supreme Court, Greg. What's Chevron deference? Well, Chevron deference, it refer, it, it's called Chevron deference because it was a case involving Chevron back in 1984. And this, it, it, something totally unrelated it was an EPA environmental matter. And the court ruled, and it set a deference standard, and it's it's a two-pronged standard, is the question is, it does the agency, is it interpreting a vague or ambiguous statute? So if Congress has specifically spoken in a statute, then we don't have a Chevron issue, a deference issue, because the agency has to follow the letter of what Congress has told them. But if the if the law is vague or ambiguous, then, then the agency is allowed to um, fill in the blanks, fill in the gaps. That is where the deference applies. And so long as the interpretation of that vague or ambiguous statute is reasonable, it gets deference. It's not doesn't have to be the best interpretation. There could be five interpretations of the statute, so long as the one the agency has picked is reasonable, the courts defer to it. And what the result has been essentially is a rubber stamping of agency action. And from what I understand that this particular ruling in combination with kind of the delegation uh, authority that Congress has, that it's really really led to the explosion of the administrative state. It has, and this has been something that's been sort of building on itself since the mid-1930s, especially with the Supreme Court interpreting and Congress interpreting the Commerce Clause more broadly, it's led to um, more uh, delegations of authority. It's led to the creation of more agencies or more branches of agencies, which leads to more regulation, which then leads to more deference. So now it's led to a circumstance where most federal law is now made at the agency level. Now, the non-delegation and the Chevron deference issue, this issue of deference, um, they came up early in some of the uh, litigation that the vaping industry launched against the FDA. Correct. And how was that? Was that going after uh, issues around uh, FDA's deeming it was it was some of the regarding to deeming and with regard to how we believed FDA was going to interpret it based upon what was said in the deeming rule. Those were all pre-PMTA cases. And we were sort of predicting the future of what was gonna we thought was gonna happen. As it turns out, things have happened pretty much the way the lawyers predicted they were gonna happen, actually a lot worse. So but but the attitude of the courts was well. We got to wait and see. We got to wait and see how FDA actually does this. You're giving us a hypothetical or a hypothesis of how they're going to act. We really don't know how they're going to act until they act. Well, now we know they've acted. And with the makeup of the court, you know, with the Trump court, um, how is that now possibly leading to where Chevron could get overturned? Well, if if you read the dissenting opinions over the last several terms coming from especially Gorsuch, and, and Kavanaugh, more more lesser to the extent Roberts, but more so those two. Um, it's been pretty clear that they want to overturn Chevron. They want to go to a less deferential standard, and now they potentially have the votes to do it. So drag that into a specific uh, example. Again, look into the future, as you're good at doing. If Chevron was overturned or substantially weakened, 
How would that impact then what, say, a vape potential future litigation that could be brought by the vaping industry? It depends really, Brent, on how far the Supreme Court goes. If they go full bore and overrule Chevron and say that we are really going to restrict deference, but if they do it in a way that also restricts the delegations, if they say, Congress, we're not going to let you or give you a pass anymore if you write these broad, ambiguous laws. We're going to make you be more specific and definitive in what you pass. So you give you give less authority to the agencies. When they say the agencies, we're gonna we're gonna hold your feet to the fire a whole lot closer. That's a whole different landscape if they do those two things than if they just simply say, we're gonna be less deferential, we're gonna keep Chevron, but we're gonna be whittle it away some more. It's it really will depend on how far the court goes with this ruling. So let me say here, just kind of off the top of my head, if I'm thinking you know, through the vaping issues, obviously, you know, everyone's had a problem with the fact that FDA had the ability to deem vaping products to be a tobacco product. Congress didn't do that. Uh, and so you can make an argument that says that, well, you know, if, if Congress didn't actually do that, then we shouldn't be under this deeming rule. I've made that argument. And I made that argument in a cert petition before SCOTUS for the industry in, in a case that I think is going to be conference tomorrow. I also made it in the en banc um, amicus brief in the Triton case in the Fifth Circuit, which will be heard next week. And what I argued is back in 2000, when the Supreme Court decided the Reynolds case, Reynolds versus FDA, and they said that the regulation of tobacco products was a major question. It was a major question because it affected a broad swath of the economy and that only Congress could give authority to FDA to regulate. Well, my argument is, is that if the regulation of tobacco products as a whole is a major question that only Congress can answer, so too is deciding what products are gonna be regulated. That too is a major question. And so I've argued that in both of those forums and actually in the Reynolds stay opinion in the Fifth Circuit that came out back in March, in one of the footnotes, if, if you read that opinion, they noted that argument in the Triton case. Now, they said, we don't have to decide this here at the state level, but they let us know it's on their radar. So walk us through what happened with Triton and then with the recent RJR stay order. Well, the, the Triton was the first case that was argued last January, and it resulted in a two-to-one decision against the industry. But the dissent from Judge Edith Jones was a very strong dissent. Triton filed a petition for en banc rehearing. And what that means is instead of a three-judge panel, they're asking the entire 16 judges on the Fifth Circuit to take the case up and rehear it. That is very rarely granted, maybe 1% of the time. Well, it was granted in this case. And it takes a, it takes a vote of a majority of the 16 judges to do that. So we know that at least nine of the 16 judges voted to rehear this case. So has there been actually movement uh, in circuit court that's noticeable that might be, you know, portending a change for the fortunes of vaping? Oh, I, I, I believe so. And that you, you mentioned the Reynolds stay decision that came out March 23rd. Well, the Fifth Circuit decision, I think, was the middle of January to rehear Triton. 
So this opinion comes out on a stay motion by Reynolds with regard to their menthol vape products. Judge Jones wrote the opinion. This opinion um, was an eye popper. And they said that FDA, they believe, violated the Administrative Procedure Act and the Tobacco Control Act by adopting what they characterized as a de facto flavor ban outside the required rulemaking process. And they said it wasn't even close. What strikes me as funny, and for the, for the pe people who aren't attorneys watching this, it seems odd to me as an appellate practitioner that the court would take up on bank rehearing for Triton, almost identical issues, same industry, same law. Three months later, a panel of that court issues a stay opinion that was just a shot across the bow. I would I find it very hard to believe that that whole panel of judges didn't vet that opinion before it was released. I really honestly believe that the um, a stay opinion in Reynolds is going to be a template for what the Fifth Circuit is going to do with Triton. The Reynolds opinion discussed the memos from the Third Circuit in the logic case that I talked about a minute or two ago, it talked about the discussion about Brian King interfering and intervening to make it look like it's a political move, not a scientific move. So basically the court outlined the fact that FDA set its guideline, its rules that it provided to the vaping industry back in 2020 over what, how in which that their products are gonna be evaluated and whether or not they might get approved. But the FDA changed those rules without giving notice to the industry. And we're talking dramatically changed them. And that's what the court really outlined here. Tell us about that. Well, and they did so after the the, P, the PMTA deadline. And what, what you're talking about is what we refer to as the comparative efficacy standard. Is FDA is requiring the manufacturers of flavored vaping products to show that their products are effective at smoking cessation more so than a tobacco flavored product. That was something that had never been discussed before the PMTA deadline. It really is, if you've seen Charlie Brown before, it really is like Lucy pulling the football from Charlie Brown. And the court mentioned this in the stay order. It's, it's not just smoking cessation, but um, FDA defined it as complete switching the term complete. And so that has some ramifications as well. But it's also contrary to positions that FDA has taken in the other appeals where they've said, well, dual uses, we're fine with dual use. So long as you're reducing your cigarette consumption, dual use is okay with us. Well, that's not the position they've taken in other cases. It's, it just depends on, I think what they do is they lick their fingers, see which way the wind's blowing. And that's what they argue that day. That is the definition, very de textbook definition of arbitrary and capricious. There's also the issue, too, in terms of proving in some manner that the products, the flavored vaping products, the non-tobacco flavored, would not uh, harm youth. Or, or be less harmful. But one of the problems with this comparative efficacy standard is FDA's never told us how effective is effective. How many smokers do we have to convert? Um, from cigarettes, and is it complete switching? They've never given us any standard um, as to what the merit, what the metrics are. Well, how do we know when we when we set up a test 
we, we they're make us do long-term studies. How do we know what the answer is? What are we even looking for? And when an agency does that kind of rulemaking uh, by the seat of its pants, and we don't know what the we don't know what the goal is, they can say, "Well, you didn't meet it." Well, you never told us what the goal is. Well, don't worry about it. You didn't meet it. That's arbitrary. And that's arbitrary. And that's certainly what the court here is really captured in this order was all the different ways in which FDA moved the goalposts and then punished, uh, in this case, RJR. And they've done the same thing to everybody else. It's been very haphazard and inconsistent. And, and the one thing from the fatal flaw memos that we saw last summer that came out, I believe, in August or Ju July or August, is that FDA was absolutely inundated with PMTAs, close to 7 million. This was occurring during COVID. Okay, so they were short-staffed anyway. And they basically adopted a check-the-box um, review standard. If you don't have the long-term studies, you're done. You get an MDO, nothing said further. Uh, which which was itself was contrary to what they told the industry and all of the pre-application guidance is you're going to get at least one deficiency letter and we'll work with you to try to cure any deficiencies. In the order, the judge says that FDA has created a de facto rule banning all non-tobacco flavored e-cigarettes without following APA notice and comment requirements. Well, what it means is under the Tobacco Control Act, FDA is authorized to promulgate tobacco product standards. And anything that has to do with the ingredients or constituents of a tobacco product is subject to that, that rule. Flavorings would be that. Nicotine content would be that. But the TCA also requires FDA to go through notice and comment rulemaking in doing that. And here's why FDA is trying to do it through the adjudicative process of the PMTAs and not the notice and comment rulemaking process. Back in 14, when the, T, when the deeming rule was first published, the proposed deeming rule was first published, went through notice and comment rulemaking, got a ton of com comments. That proposed rule also then had to be reviewed by the Office of Management and Budget within the White House. I don't know if you know this or not, but OMB struck out, excised the proposed, and, and the original deeming rule proposed to ban all characterizing flavors in deemed products. Well, OMB struck that out. It would not allow that to be effective. So the deeming rule that was adopted didn't have the that ban. FDA wanted it. They know that if they go through the rulemaking process, they're not going to be able to get what they want. They've already been told that. So they're trying to go, do an end run around that process, which is even worse. I'm looking, Greg, to try to put uh, a potential Chevron uh, ruling together with vaping. And to me, it comes down to the appropriate for the protection of public health, because isn't the problem the fact that Congress never defined that and everything depends on that. And so if Congress didn't define that, didn't they actually make the law vague? Well, they did make the law vague, but what Congress said is it, it's appropriate for the protection of public health, but it also tells FDA they have to measure the risks and benefits of a product against the population as a whole. Where, where the problem is, is 
They didn't give you guide, give the agency guidance as to what risks are important, what benefits are important, what's the priority you you the che- what's the checklist. And, and here's another issue with that, Brent. In in United States, it's illegal to sell a tobacco product or provide a tobacco product to anybody under under 21 years old. Well, people under 21 years old are part of the population as a whole. So how do you efficacy test a product against a cross-section of the population, which systematically excludes people under age 21? Because people under age 21 do smoke. We know that. If you look at the recent studies, the kids are telling us we're vaping. Many of them are vaping to either quit smoking or in lieu of smoking. And the, the, the youth smoking rate is almost nothing. The kids, the kids are a lot smarter than we give them credit for. And kids have always wanted to be risky, you know, do risky, stupid things. That's why years ago they were wanting to give out condoms in schools. Harm reduction. It's, this is the same, same philosophy. If a kid, if a 16-year-old kid is smoking, it's just as bad for their health, probably worse than it is for a 35-year-old to be smoking. So if the kids are smart enough, they they realize that these products are less harmful, um, aren't going to lead to the health issues. And what's even more striking is that the kids aren't switching from um, vaping to smoking as they get older. So we're not looking at something that's going to be a gateway at least we don't think that the evidence so far is not showing that to be the case down the road. The kids want to be risky, do stupid things. They're doing it with less harmful products than past generations of kids have. To me, that's a public health win. And something and something that has to be considered when you're looking at the risks and benefits across the population as a whole. I, I sort of fashion that to a comp- complex math formula. And there's a lot of equations. And you have to plug in numbers to those equations to get the right answer. Well, what FDA is doing is they're plugging in a zero for any benefit for youth use, but they're using a real number for risks. Well, when you just plug in a number that you don't know what the variable is or you don't like the real number, you're going to get a bad answer every time or a wrong answer every time. And that's really what FDA is doing. So walk us through what's coming up then uh, in terms of litigation impacting the industry. Well, next, well, just yesterday, actually, the Third Circuit in Philadelphia uh, heard oral arguments in the case with um, Logic, and I'm I'm waiting for the link to that to drop so I can listen to that hearing. Um, I know in the Fonum case back in January, as I said, the panel really did not seem to be buying what FDA was selling in their arguments. They had they took real issue. Next Tuesday in New Orleans. The Fifth Circuit on Bonk, all 16 judges are going to be rehearing the Triton case. That should be really interesting. I'm flying down to, to watch that. An important question, I'm sure it's on uh, viewers' minds here, is that could any one of these these cases you're talking about have an impact that provides relief for the entire industry, or does this have to be one-off? Well, I think we're on a collision course to the Supreme Court because... The 11th Circuit has said we were right. If the 5th Circuit says we were right, there's also cases pending in the 2nd, now D.C., and the 9th Circuit and the 3rd Circuit that's, that we don't have decisions on yet. If those break our way, then we've got a what's called a circuit split. We've got certain circuits have said we're right, other circuits have said FDA is right. 
Well, cir circuit splits are decided by the Supreme Court. So I think we're on a collision course to the Supreme Court. One of the questions is how far is the Fifth Circuit going to go next week? And it's it, it'll it'll take it a little while to write, issue a written opinion. But how far is that opinion going to go? If they follow my argument about major the major question issue, they could declare the deeming provision of the Tobacco Control Act and thus the deeming rule unconstitutional, and FDA would have no authority over us at that point. I guarantee you that gets us to the Supreme Court. I don't know if the court will go that far, but think of the world we live in if that happens. At a minimum, I think the Fifth Circuit's going to say um, FDA violated the Tobacco Control Act in not going through notice and comment rulemaking on the product standards, and they've adopted a de facto ban. We're going to um, disallow that. That's then going to create a, a split among the circuits. Again, we're going to be at the Supreme Court. And another point I want to make that has nothing to do with vaping, but it does sort of offer some insight. Um, the recent, I don't know if you followed or not, the dispute that's been going on down here over the abortion drug. Well, the case went to the Supreme Court on a stay motion and Justice Alito wrote a dissent. And in the last paragraph of his dissent, he said something that to me, to come from a Supreme Court justice was absolutely shocking that he expressed his view that um, he, he was reticent that FDA would actually honor and follow and abide by any adverse court ruling. So for a justice, for a justice of the Supreme Court to say he did not have confidence that the agency would actually obey a court ruling was shocking.